Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In 2019, to mark the 80th anniversary of the outbreak of the Second World War, Four novels that had long been out of print were republished in the Imperial War Museum Wartime Classics series. The series aims to give forgotten novels set in the war a new lease of life, and now two more are being published, each of them written directly from the author's own experience and taking the reader right into the heart of the conflict. I'm Rob Weinberg, and to find out more about the Imperial War Museum Wartime Classics, I've been talking to Alan Jeffries, who's senior curator at the museum. This is Historical Fiction. Alan, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much. When we think of the First World War, we think of novels such as All Quiet on the Western Front or Siegfried Sassoon's Memoirs of an Infantry Officer. But when it comes to World War II, why do you think it is that the novels of that period have largely been forgotten? I think there's some very good novels from the Second World War. For example, Evelyn War's Sword of Honour trilogy, Olivia Manning's Fortunes of War, and then in the wider world, Vasily Grossman's Life and Fate comes to mind, and Joseph Heller's Catch-22. So there's some absolutely excellent Second World War novels out there. And I think perhaps one of the things with the First World War poetry and novels is that a lot of that has been taught to generations of schoolchildren over the years. So, you know, people have heard of Wilfred Owen, for example. But when his poetry was first issued in 1920, the volume of poetry didn't even sell out. He wasn't that well known. It was only in the 1960s that he became quite well known. And then, obviously, the 1920s and 30s, there was a whole raft of First World War novels that came out. Some absolutely marvellous ones. I mean, there's David Jones's In Parenthesis, which comes out in the sort of mid-30s. And it's a poetry and prose, but an absolutely amazing piece of work. Every time you reread it, there's always something more in it. So I think the real difference is that it takes time for the really good novels to come out. So after the First World War, they come out in the 20s and 30s. And after the Second World War, they come out in the late 40s and 1950s. Do you think that with hindsight that the novel of the Second World War is on a par with the poetry of World War I? Yeah, well, I think poetry and reportage is the kind of the immediate response to war. There's very good poetry, Second World War, as well as First World War. You know, the poets like Alan Lewis come to mind. And then it takes a bit longer for the really good novels to come out. I'd say there's some excellent novels from the First World War and from the Second World War being produced. Now, the Imperial War Museum is now reissuing some of the novels of the era in a series called Wartime Classics. 
How have you gone about choosing the particular novels? Generally, they've been people who experienced the war, and most of them, I have to say, have been forgotten, considering what I just said. Two of them I already knew and I'd read. Another two been recommended, and the last two were literally found on the shelves of the um, museum library and were so good they sort of warranted republishing. So you began last year with From the City, From the Plough by Alexander Barron. Who was Alexander Barron and what caught your attention with that particular book? That was one of the ones that was actually been recommended to me by a large number of people. He served in the Pioneer Corps during the Second World War and much later on, at the end of 1944, was transferred to infantry. He served out in Italy and then northwest Europe. And the novel is just a marvellous depiction of what it's like from the point of view of an ordinary soldier fighting in northwest Europe. And I think, coming back to what we were talking about earlier, a lot of the novels from the First World War were penned by officers. So this is a real difference. And it shows the camaraderie. The novel goes from training in England to the D-Day landings and then the Normandy campaign and finishes off with a particularly poignant battle scene during the Battle of Normandy. And the second book you brought out is from a totally different front, Trial by Battle, which covers the jungle warfare in Malaya. This is a book I knew, actually, because my main research area is the Indian Army. And I knew it really well. I thought it was absolutely marvellous. And it was really good to be able to bring the book out for a new readership. I mean, basically, it's about a chap called Alan Mart, who um, goes out to India to become an officer. He goes to the officer training school and then he joins his Indian Army battalion. There was an incident at a tennis party a couple of Sundays ago. Incident? Our Sam, said the adjutant, was stinking. The CO's aunt would tell him about the trouble she was having with one of the sweepers, and Sam, in the end, told her straight out she was a flat-chested Tory. Alan said he didn't know you could say that to your CO's aunt. You can't. But Sam said, and he stuck to it, and the words he had really used were, what a fascinating story. And as the aunt is deafish, and I perjured myself in favour of Sam's version, all the CO did was to blow Sam up to the ceiling and put him on the water wagon. Oh, you still have tennis parties? It was October 1941, and even in India, the war had been on officially for over two years. Yes, the women like it, and you may well ask, do we still have women? And the answer still is, yes, the women like it. But it only happens on Sunday afternoons, otherwise you'll find we work solid. By the way, you've got visiting cards, of course. Of course, they said. He had had them engraved in Bombay during his leave. I think I'd better go back to my room now and see if my kit's turned up. Alan's room was a small wooden box that contained a bed with a wire framework on which was furled like a canopy, his mosquito net. There was a wooden chair, a table, a rudimentary chest of drawers, a washbowl on a metal tripod stand. Set in the ceiling was a large electric fan. Not much of his kit had come. He walked about his room, he switched a switch, and a naked light bulb shone palely. He switched it off and tried the second switch. With a grunt, the fan heaved into action. He lay down and looked at the fan through the mosquito net. After a while, he took a crumpled airmail letter from his breast pocket and started to read it. 
And then the sort of most intense part of the novel is about actual jungle warfare in Malaya, because the unit, after some training in India, goes out to Malaya. But really, basically, they're under-trained and they're under-equipped, and this really comes out in the novel. It's one of the best novels of the Second World War. Do you think that you get more insight, in a way, to the day-to-day life of soldiers from a novel than you would from formal reports or historical accounts of particular campaigns? I think sometimes, yeah, definitely. But things like camaraderie, I think that comes out in quite a few of the novels. It definitely comes out in From the City, From the Plough, and also one of the new novels that we're reprinting as well, Warriors for the Working Day. So the third book you brought out was Plenty Under the Counter by Kathleen Hewitt, and that really brings the war home, doesn't it? It does, yes. So the backdrop to the novel is London during the Blitz, and London was first bombed on the 7th of September 1940, and the Blitz went on until May 1941. London was actually bombed for 72 consecutive nights, except two of them when the weather was so bad, and almost 20,000 Londoners were killed during the Blitz. Uh, so this is the backdrop to the novel. The novel itself is more of a sort of old-fashioned whodunit, but it really gives you a very good idea of what London was like from everyday life, but also to the extent of the crime that was going on. You know, the black market is very much to the fore in the book. It is actually a very enjoyable read. Yes, there's a perception of the Blitz that everyone was pulling together and foremost in everyone's mind was the national interest, but there was a bit of a spike in break-ins and crime and burglaries. Most definitely. I mean, there's looting is one of the main issues, especially during the Blitz. And then the black market throughout the war is rampant. I mean, um, and one of the centres of the black market was actually Soho during the war. One of the books in your series was actually written by the renowned actor Anthony Quayle. What was his wartime experience? He served in the Special Operations Executive, basically um, behind the lines. Originally, he joined the Royal Artillery, and I think he'd been in ADC to a general in Gibraltar and been involved in a couple of shows, that kind of thing. And I think he'd got basically fed up of it. And one of his friends suggested, it's around about 1943, that he joined the SRE. And he ends up being sent into Albania, behind the lines. And his novel is called Eight Hours from England. It's published in 1945. What I find quite interesting is that I think if it had been produced as a memoir, he probably wouldn't have been allowed to publish it because of secret activities. Whereas, as a novel, it comes out extremely early. And when he wrote his autobiography, you can see from that, which comes out much later in the 70s, I think, 70s or 80s, how near his real life is to the novel, with some of the names only just changed slightly. It's um, absolutely fascinating. And that was one of the novels that was on the shelves in the library. And quite incredible, really. Tell us about the two new titles, Patrol and Warriors of the Working Day, which you've mentioned. Patrol is about an officer in the North Africa campaign. He is a wartime officer. The novel's by a chap called Fred Magellani. I think it's basically based on his experience. He is a company commander in an infantry battalion. And he gets wounded, he spends a bit of time in hospital, comes back again as a company commander, and he has to lead a reconnaissance patrol, a night patrol. And that is the climax of the novel. And the second novel, is Warriors for the Working Day, is by a chap called Peter Elstob. Basically, it's about a tank crew in the Northwest Europe campaign. Again, it starts with training in England. Um, they go over on DDA plus five, and then the novel continues through the Normandy campaign until they enter Germany. That night, it rained. 
and the rain continued without a break for three days. Donovan and his crew spent almost all their time either inside the turret, listening to the wireless, or on the ground under the tank tarpaulin, which they had stretched from the tank to the hedge. It was dark and warm like the inside of an igloo, with a small bulb for light, running off the tank's batteries, and the petrol stove for warmth and cooking. Sometimes most of the rest of the troops squeezed in under their tarpaulin. The other tanks contributed something from their supplies, and a huge mess tin of tea would be made, and they would sit around while two of them engaged in a heated argument, or, more simply, a slanging match. It might be the Scots versus the English, the North versus the South, old soldiers versus new soldiers, or any of many other popular combinations. It was all unfamiliar to Brooke, but he soon learned the unwritten rules. The abuse was kept within carefully understood limits. A man's honour, courage, honesty, truthfulness or morals could be torn to shreds with impunity. It was permissible to accuse another man of always avoiding work, to maintain that he would run like a rabbit at the sound of a popgun, to accuse him of lying, cheating or stealing, and no offence would be taken. But nothing could be said that reflected upon his social status, his ability to pay his share, his personal cleanliness or his family. What I find quite interesting about both of them is that both authors wrote a number of novels and they're both actually military historians. They obviously both served during the war and Peter Elstop wrote a very good campaign history of the Battle of Bulge and uh, Fred Magellani wrote a number of campaign histories and he also wrote a novel about the casino campaign and wrote a very good history of the casino campaign which is still used by historians today. What do you think an author brings to a novel when he's actually served through a campaign. So I'll come back to that, that aspect of camaraderie that I mentioned earlier. So that's particularly in Boris for a Working Day. And also I think because they could show the sort of intensity and the claustrophobia of, say, of being in a tank for months on end, undertaking, you know, a night patrol, or the intensity of fighting in the jungle. It seems to me, listening to these extracts, that all of these authors have a very good ear for the banter, for the conversation, the camaraderie. Do you think there's literary merit in them as well? Because when one thinks of the First World War poets, they stand alone as really beautiful pieces of writing with literary merit. Are these more narratives, perhaps, that give us a glimpse into what life was like? They do have some literary merit. I'm not a student of English, I'm more of a historian. I think definitely Trial by Battle is really quite literary, and perhaps one or two of the others as well. There's an element of both, I think. That's probably a fair way of putting it. Quite a few great novels about the Second World War have been made into films. Is it because these haven't been made into films that perhaps they're not so well known? Possibly. Alexander Barron, I mean, he did a lot of film scripts. One of his criticism of war films, for example, was that they didn't really show the realism of war. And that certainly comes out in his novel. So many novels are produced, they sort of get lost over the years. And one or two of these have been reprinted before as well. It's just, you know, renewed for another generation. Now, you've been working at the Imperial War Museum for many years. How has it been for you rediscovering these novels? 
Well, it's really nice, actually. I have to say, I mean, two of them, Patrol and Trial by Battle, it was really nice to be involved in the reprint of those because, you know, I knew them well and it was good to um, get them out. For the others, you know, I think it's just a really, really interesting project to work on. And I think perhaps an aspect that it isn't so well known, you know, the novels of the Second World War, quite often the novels get perhaps slightly neglected. From that point of view, a really great project. Definitely one of the best I've worked on in my time at the museum. The novels are all written from the Allied perspective. Were there novels being written within the Axis countries that perhaps deserve translation that we haven't seen much of? Possibly. Um, I've got two lined up to read. One is set in Germany and one is set in Finland. They both have been published in English, but I haven't actually read them yet. They're on the list because one of the enduring images from the First World War is the film All Quiet on the Western Front, which, for the first time, perhaps puts the war from the German perspective. Are there glimpses in any of these novels of a kind of common humanity when the soldiers meet face-to-face? Well, I mean, there are some marvellous Second World War novels from different points of view. Vasily Grossman's Life and Fate, I have to say, I was immersed in that, and I understand that his new novel, Stalingrad, has been brought out in English anyway, and uh, reprinted, and uh, I'm certainly looking forward to reading that. Are there many more to choose from, from the shelves of the Imperial War Museum? Definitely. I mean, I've, I've got a bibliography in, um, on my shelves, and it lists over 2,000 novels, and that is just from 1939 to 1988. So I think there's plenty of scope. How will you choose? The more I read, the more I realise there's more to read. So um, the list I've got to read at the moment, I mean, I've got about 10 books, I think, that um, I'm going to dip into and and, and see whether they might worth republishing. And how can people get hold of these? Do they have to buy them from the Imperial War Museum or are they more widely available? You can buy them from the IWM in the shops and from the IWM website and also online. Well, best of luck to you. Alan Jeffries, thank you very much for talking to us. Well, thank you very much indeed. Historical fiction. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. (laughs) Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>